Yes, this is our Simon Dong reading group. We're continuing our reading of imagination and invention. Um, my notes from last time are correct. I think we're starting at page 38 of the translation. Um, so uh, last time we, so we started on um, part one of the book, the, the actual sort of body of the book after the introduction. Uh, and so we're looking at um, the, uh, the relationship between motricity and the image is, is sort of the general theme of what we've been reading so far. So what is the connection between images um, as a part of mental life and motor action? Uh, and he's looking, he's starting with um, non-human animals uh, as sort of like a, a reference point for a lot of what he's talking about here. Um, but he, he does bring up uh, human behavior as well. Um, so the idea here is that um, we, we can use um, non-human animals as uh, a sort of reference points to sometimes, uh, you know, see things in a, a simpler um, setting, uh, like a behavioral repertoire that has um, a few, uh, uh, sort of less complication than human behavior um, in certain animals. So that helps to uh, sort of bring out phenomena that we might not you know, notice or it might be harder to um, harder to pin down in human beings. Um, and then we also have uh, then sort of the other direction is that sometimes we can um, understand um, animal behavior better by comparing it with uh, um, a related human behavior. Um, so um, he talks about like the example of human children um, that play with dolls as a kind of um, uh, the, the doll has to have a, a sort of motor a relation to the motor behavior of, um, you know, pretending to raise a child of, you know, carrying and uh, cradling and so on, um, as opposed to a, a sort of um, perceptual resemblance to a child. So he talks about how like a, a bundle of rags that has sort of a vaguely um, arm, body, leg sort of shape um, is probably better as a as a toy, as a doll for a child than like um, an anatomically accurate model of a human uh, baby, but one that's like fragile or uh, rigid or something that doesn't actually have the same kind of um, um, relationship to the human behavior of, of carrying a child. Um, so the, and, and I brought up last time the concept of affordances, which uh, Simon doesn't use here. I'm not sure if he was aware of uh, James Gibson's work or not. Um, but it was, you know, around the same time in the in the 1960s that he was developing these concepts, uh, and and so this idea of an affordance is um, has to do with the relationship between an organism and some feature of the environment, um, and what sort of actions that feature of the environment allows the organism to perform. So a surface is walkable, for example, for a certain organism, um, whereas for another organism it might not be walkable, like. Uh, um, uh, one of the sort of classic examples that's used is that for certain insects, the surface of uh, a pond might be walkable, whereas for, um, say, uh, I don't know, a dog or a human, the surface of the pond is not walkable. Um, and uh, and so this affordance of walkability is something that is uh, sort of um, a relationship between the uh, behavior of a, an organism, the sort of actions that that organism can perform, and features of the environment. And, and so different organisms will have sort of bring out or be able to recognize different uh, affordances in the, the physical environment. And so Simondo was talking about a similar idea here about how different objects or different aspects of the environment 
um, are related to different um, elements of the behavioral repertoire of different organisms. Uh, and so obviously we're primarily interested in humans, but he's um, using other organisms to sort of bring out the, this relativity of the aspects of, uh, of the environment to motor behavior. Uh, so that's what we looked at last time. Uh, so let's pick up from, um, I think we're at the subsection break, uh, subject, subsection five, motor images and imitation. Uh, so maybe if someone else could read from there the, the full uh, subsection, I think. I can read this section. Uh, sorry, we're on subsection five. Yeah, I think that's where we stopped. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think that sounds right. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Uh, subsection five, motor images and imitation, phenomena of sympathetic induction. So-called quote-unquote imitation phenomena would seem to suggest that the perception of a movement is necessary in order for another individual of the same species to reproduce it. There would then be a kind of learning that is presupposed that presupposed neither spontaneity nor the pre-existence of a motor image in the subject that reproduced a movement or a characteristic posture. In fact, notions such as quote-unquote monkeying that presume the possibility of a servile imitation of perceived movements among animals are devoid of serious foundation. Certain functional imitations exist among birds, words of human language, musical tunes, perfecting of specific song, but such facts are rare and belong rather to the general category of perfecting innate schemas than to pure imitation. It was not possible to teach monkeys to write by guiding their hands for many hours. They are also unable to learn the use of a device such as the lock on a box by observing another member of their species that knows how to use it. Phenomena taken to be instances of imitation are generally cases of sympathetic induction. Katz and Revez discovered this phenomenon in studying chickens that were fed in isolation until they refused food. Placed among fasting chickens and the same kind of food, the former, however satiated, started eating again as soon as the latter began. The motions and sounds of pecking exerted a sympathetic induction equivalent to the reemergence of the motivation that had vanished. It is not a case of imitation because pecking is entirely innate in chickens. As soon as it leaves the egg, the chick knows how to peck. Sympathetic induction implies the pre-existence of a motor image functioning as a motivation. Such, induc such induction effects occur among humans particularly for the most instinctual activities. Detecting the various types of sympathetic induction might serve as a way to investigate instinctual behaviors. This effect is observable in eating and behaviors such as gathering, fleeing, entering a hall, getting up from a chair and leaving a room. It is even more notable in pairing rites, so-called erotic films, and in exhibitions of violence, the so-called quote-unquote crowd phenomena Le Bon studied, used in the propaganda of totalitarian regimes. All modes of reproduction and transmission of temporal sequences may evince sympathetic induction. TV, films, but also speeches, music, and singing, Hitler's speeches, revolutionary singing, military marches. The quote-unquote force of the example is exerted through the effects of sympathetic induction. It intervenes essentially in domains where instinctual conducts exist, that is, in primary categories of behavior. So this section, if I'm reading it, correctly seems to be sort of clearing away a potential objection, which is that 
these imitation phenomena seem to depend on perception first, which would seem to be a problem for Simondon's argument that these motor functions are a priori, but he argues that they aren't, it's not the perception that is first, but that perception can sort of trigger a pre-existing motor schema. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, so he wants to distinguish between imitation in the proper sense of the term, which, as, as you pointed out, uh, uh, depends on perception. So you, you perceive um, a certain kind of behavior, and then you, you imitate that behavior and, and you know, perform it for yourself. That's what he wants to distinguish from the other case, which is the one that he's interested in here, um, where uh, perception uh, at some level serves to sort of uh, trigger or release a kind of behavior that is not um, copied, um, that is not copied from uh, some other uh, observation. So like in the case of the chickens, um, chickens don't learn how to peck at food by watching other chickens. Um, they, they know how to do that from birth or from hatching, I should say. Um, they they already know how to do it, um, but observing other chickens uh, pecking at food um, sort of elicits this behavior of pecking, uh, even when the chickens have already just eaten as much as they want. Uh, so he wants to distinguish these two kinds of cases, and he he's arguing or he's he's suggesting here that um, the the case of the eliciting of behavior is more uh, fundamental than the one of imitation. He thinks that imitation in the sort of strict sense of the term, is uh, a relatively rare phenomenon in uh, in the animal world. And he talks about like in the case of birds that um, uh, learn to to say human words, for example, um, or they learn uh, songs or or things like that. Um, I think maybe uh, more recent um, animal uh, animal psychology or ethology would would put more emphasis on the imitation side that. Um, there are more animals that we know now than in the 1960s um, that uh, learn through uh, something like imitation, like they, they have a cultural transmission of like bird song. Uh, Simon Don mentions this sort of in passing, but um, many songbirds uh, have sort of local uh, dialects of their song. So each um, there, there's sort of a, a common structure that all birds of that species use, but then there are sort of variations of uh, of um, that same common structure in different localities. So each um, uh, each uh, bird that's learning how to sing the the particular song of its species um, has to learn the specific variety that is used in that locality, and uh, and so it has to sort of fill in the details of the of the song based on imitation learning. Um, and this is also the case with uh, whales. Um, there they have different sort of dialects of the whale song um uh, and i think some other animals as well but um yeah so it's more widespread than simon do maybe um is recognizing here but I, I think the point of um trying to distinguish between uh you know something that involves learning in the proper sense of the term and and imitation in in the narrow sense uh and then something that uh a kind of motor schema that um that requires, uh, uh, you know, a recognition of um, a certain phenomenon in the environment to uh, to be elicited. Um, yeah, so I think distinguishing those two um, sort of aspects of behavior, even if they might be more uh, intricately interconnected than, than maybe he's uh, letting on here, 
I think that distinction is still valid. Yes, and then uh, that that bit about the monkeys is interesting um, because yeah, so there have been um, <clears throat> some experiments uh, not with monkeys but with um, chimpanzees um, um, and gorillas uh, to try to teach them human language. Uh, and so one of the sort of basic obstacles is the um, the vocal articulatory mechanisms are are different in humans and uh, and other apes. Uh, so humans have um, uh, our larynx is lower in our throat, and that allows our tongue to move more freely, um, whereas um, other apes have uh, a much higher larynx, and uh, so their their tongue can't move as as freely as ours can. So what um, some researchers um, decided to do was to try to teach sign language to um, to chimpanzees and, and gorillas uh, because their hands are are you know just as um, free as ours are, they can, you know, perform all sorts of intricate movements with their hands. Um, and what um, the the sort of, I mean, this is not something that I know very well, but the sort of, um, I think, consensus position is that um, in, in these experiments, they were able, so these apes were able to learn uh, sometimes a few hundred signs for different um, objects, for example, or different actions. Um, but in general, they didn't learn um, the sort of syntactic structure of language in in the way that human sign language users do. Uh, so they they learn sort of isolated words and they can sort of string them together and then um, uh, respond to strings of of uh, of words, but they they don't learn um, like the syntactic structure in the same way that that humans do. Um, and there's there's actually an interesting case of one. This is sort of an aside, but there's um. Uh, one case where um, a chimpanzee, uh, a mother chimpanzee, was being taught to use these uh, signs, and uh, and the the infant that she was sort of um, carrying around, or who was like in in the room during these experiments, actually learned um, just sort of by observation, as opposed to sort of explicit teaching, um, learned um, all all the signs that um, his mother did. Uh, but actually learned much more um, uh, sort of uh, grammatical structure, uh, and so was able, like, was able to learn how to respond to new sentences, like you know, put the apple in the corner or whatever, something like that. Um, like new instructions that um, had never been presented before, uh, and and so this uh, I think it was Kenzo, I think is uh, this chimp's name, if I remember correctly, um, um, was able to uh, to learn how to um, sort of take uh, known words and put them together into novel sentences and understand the structure of those sentences and uh, perform appropriate actions in response. Um, so again, there's more um, sort of complicated learning uh, in animals than maybe Simone Don recognized at the time, just based on the, um, uh, you know, what was available in scientific literature at that time. But um, I think the sort of basic point, the basic distinction between these two kinds of um, uh, responses of behavior to the environment is uh, is still a valid one. Oh, I'm just wondering, uh, I'm just wondering if it is a too, um, too much generalization of animals, like, like human beings, like, for example, chickens, like the, in the, in the experimental presented in the text, like, those chickens could do the, uh, that way, but the, other kinds of chickens, I mean, could do the individual different kind of singular behavior. I mean, show 
singular behavior are different from like the behavior like the chickens are in the text. So what I want to say is that in terms of animal world, like there is a kind of a limitation human being could observe. Or I mean, so what Simongdong like uh, tried to bring up like could be like uh, some kind of a too, too much generalization of like the animal world. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, I think in animal psychology or um, or ethology, uh, the tendency is always to try to find species um, species specific behaviors or species um, characteristic behaviors. Uh, so like pigeons will do X in situation Y or pigs will do Z in, in situation W or whatever. Um, but uh, it's true that yes, individual animals um, have their own sort of uh, life history and, um, uh, you know, uh, capacities. And, um, you know, I, th I think it's fair to say even a, a personality um, in, in terms of like, some animals might be more um, interested in the, the experiment and might, you know, try to figure out what exactly they're supposed to do. Others might think this is stupid. And like, why, why is this experimenter keep showing me the same picture over and over again, or something like that. Um, uh, yeah, so the animals have their own um, dispositions to respond in various ways that might be specific to an individual animal as opposed to a uh, characteristic of the species. But uh, in general, uh, the sort of experimental um, situation of, uh, you know, taking multiple um, animals and then maybe like averaging out their response and saying, you know, the average response time of the rat to this stimulus was 10 milliseconds or whatever. Um, uh, yeah, so that's like the type of result that you tend to get in studies of animal behavior is a is a an average or a generalization, um, but that sort of hides the individual variation of uh, um, you know what the different animal uh, dispositions might be to respond in different ways, uh, and and that's something I think would be much more difficult to study um, than um, yeah than like. Uh, trying to get averages. So yeah, it's uh, probably something that um, hasn't really been studied a lot as far as I know, like, um, yeah, just specific behaviors of individual animals as a, a field of study is something that I, I don't think has been examined that much. I think, yeah, I think the the end of this paragraph, at the end of this section, when he, he then applies the animal, the example of animal behavior to human behavior, I think seems significant. So he talks about these induction effects, so whereby the chicken, the chicken which you imagine doesn't want any more food, is induced to start eating by the example of other chickens. So uh, he's looking at the the how this. He's saying that basically it's a, it's a good way of um, um, investigating instinctual activities, um, so the kind of unthought instinctive activities. And detecting the various types of sympathetic induction might serve the way to investigate instinctual behaviors. Yeah, and so then he gives these examples of eating and fleeing, entering a hall, etc., etc. And then, but then he goes on to at the end, he talks about modes of reproduction and transmission of temporal. So basically, I think he's talking about films and TV. So how these are then captured and then repeated. I think what he's saying, and he gives the example of Hitler's speeches. I mean, it seems to me that. One of the one of the big problems is the 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 lack of speech, the lack of language between animals and humans. Because I would have thought Hitler's speeches were tr mostly uh, fantastic examples of rhetoric. I don't mean fantastic in a good way, by the way. But you know, they're they're like um, they're examples of speech, the the force of language 
to induce behavior. Um, so I'm not quite sure where the, so we, we've got the notion of films. So we see, we might see a film of a, a behavior, certain behavior, which then the, the idea is somehow it induces certain behavior, certain instinctual behavior on our part. And yet what's missing from that is the kind of role of language in that, I would say. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. We, um, we mentioned this at one point when we were talking about um, the individuation book, um, how Simon Don has um, pretty much nothing to say about language in general, um, which is kind of surprising given how sort of broad ranging his interests are. Um, um, yeah, and, and that's um, kind of a, um, one of the key distinctions between uh, these sort of animal examples that he talks about of uh, induction of behavior and then human examples. Um, is the again that mediating role of language um so some of the examples like the hitler speeches example um again, yeah they obviously depend on um linguistic uh mediation or linguistic uh sort of uh representation of some kind um but i think maybe what he's thinking of in in that context is not so much the content of the speech so the linguistic um uh um, yeah, linguistic content of the speech, but the sort of, um, like, I mean, it's not something I've sort of studied in detail, but like, if you see clips from Hitler's speeches, he's sort of gesticulating and, um, yelling and, and sort of, um, there, there's like, a, a a sort of, um, motor, um, capacity or motor aspect of the speeches that, um, the gestures and the intonation and th things like that are things that, uh, maybe that's what he's thinking of, uh, that other people, in the crowd are, are sort of responding to these aspects of the speech um, at least as much, if not more, than to the sort of um, uh, representational content, the linguistic content of the speech. Um, but yeah, that example is definitely more difficult than some of the other ones. Uh, and, and I think he talks about later on, in, or maybe it's a different text, but he talks about um, um, maybe some better examples of this type of induction in humans are things like laughter and yawning, um, which are uh, universal human behaviors. Like every, every culture, humans in every culture have these um, behaviors. Uh, and then they're also uh, like, we, we talk about uh, laughter and yawning as being contagious. Like you see someone laughing, you start laughing, even if you don't really know what the joke is or what they're laughing about it. it uh, um, you, and this is like, you know, uh, old sitcoms where they put a laugh track on something to it like makes it see even if you know what's going on you, it still makes it seem as if something is funny be, just because other people are laughing at it even if the the joke is not actually any good um uh and um seeing seeing another person yawn makes us you know have uh, the urge to yawn um so these types of behaviors are um are not behaviors we have to learn by watching other people we don't have to learn how to laugh for example um but uh they there's they're sort of induced by um by um other by seeing other people perform those behaviors uh so those are maybe better examples of um this type type of induced behavior in humans uh and then some of the examples that he gives um are more complicated precisely because of that rule of language that you brought up uh, so there there's some sort of interaction between the the sort of induced behavior side and the um linguistic representation that, you know, they interact with each other in some way, but it's, it's more complicated than just, you know, seeing someone laughing and then feeling the urge to laugh yourself. Yeah. Cause I think the, the, one of the primary ideas, so I, what, what I'm talking about really, I suppose is rhetoric. So one of its primary 
one of the primary uh, ideas behind rhetoric is that it, it it will enable movement. So it does. Uh, we're talking here about movement. So the movement in one will induce a movement in another, and that, in a sense, is one of the foundations of, of rhetorical speech. But what it does, it moves you. It does move you to action. Actually, I mean, that's one of the principles of political rhetoric it, that it makes you do something. So the 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 person speaking, the the rhetor, the rhetor, what they're trying to do is uh, is to induce movement in the pe- people who are listening. But that movement um, may not be motor, it might not be movement of bodily movement. It's more likely to be kind of movement of sentiment, movement of emotion, movement of mind. And I think that's probably the big difference I would imagine between the kind of motor induction that. Simondon is focusing on here, which is a kind of an outward show of uh, movement, bodily movement, with an inward show of feelings. And I think that's a big difference, I would say. Yeah, that's an interesting point, too, because uh, we talk about like something being a moving speech or a moving, um, uh, you know, poem or something like that. Like um, we we use this um, metaphor of um, and, and even the word emotion has has, you know, the root of motion in it so it's it's a sort of um uh there's there's a sort of metaphorical and etymological connection between um our conception of uh emotional or affective responses to um to situations like uh, a speech uh and then the um actual emotion that the speech might elicit from us um so yeah, I think um, Simondon maybe is going a little bit quickly here with this uh with his sort of um examples that he brings up about you know political speeches and so on um that um yeah the the there's probably different sort of levels of uh interaction at work in um our response to a speech or a political song or something like that um so we're we're sort of there's the maybe most basic level is the behavioral induction that you know this um uh situation elicits a behavior in us that we sort of perform um or that we have this uh, disposition to perform without learning um and then there might be a level of imitation in the proper sense of the term that he's um you know distinguishing uh here so learned behaviors that that we've you know learned from observing other people and then there's like a maybe an intellectual level where we um grasp the the content of what the person is saying in the speech and we either agree with it or disagree with it or um or you know think it's smart or or stupid or whatever um and, and so all these things sort of interact with each other to bring about a response in the person. And, and, you know, when rhetoric is effective, it's when all of those things all sort of push in the same direction. So you you find yourself agreeing with the content of the speech and you also feel inclined towards action and, and uh, you feel positive sentiment towards the speaker and, and things like that. So all these things sort of um, interact with each other to to bring about a response in the audience. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's probably more complicated than Simon Don was letting on in this section. Yeah, and that's an interesting point that Angus has brought up in the chat here about um, the use of uh, charms and spells um, in in and you know what connection it has to to poetry. Um, so yeah, like magic speech um, in various societies has um, sort of w- one of the common um, features in in many uh, cases is that you have these sort of um, uh, rhythmic uh repetition or um so things like rhymes or uh um restricted uh metrical structures and things like that that sort of 
um, mark off the, the speech of the magic spell or the charm or whatever. Um, they make it distinct from everyday speech. Uh, and and this the sort of repetitive structure or um, rhythmical structure helps to uh, sort of uh, reinforce the difference with uh, between everyday speech and also to um, make it easier to memorize these uh, these texts or, or these um, uh, speeches. Um, um, and and so yeah, there, there's all kinds of um, and and so yeah, the, the sort of rhythmical structure, the the just the sound structure of this. Um, um, uh, sort of form of speech can produce effects in us in, in terms of making us um, feel like we can grasp the, um, we can memorize the, the speech more easily uh, and things like that. Um, so yeah, the, there's all kinds of sort of complicated phenomena here that um, Simon Don is not really, um, he just sort of uh, points towards some of these phenomena but doesn't really investigate. Um, so yeah, bringing in language and um, how language has these different levels in it, I think would be interesting. Yes, uh, yeah, the, um, the oral tradition of, um, of some of the epic poems, I think we brought this up um, when uh, we were talking about um, individuation, I, like the Iliad and the Odyssey were likely um, first transmitted as oral um, poems, um, given their structure, the, the epithets that um, are used for you know, swift-footed Achilles and things like that. Um, these are um, characteristic of orally orally transmitted uh, poems, um, and so there's a, a good chance that um, uh, the poems that we associate with Homer as um, as the author were part of a, an oral tradition. Um, you know, whoever it was who actually you know sat down and wrote the the forms that we have now, um, and uh, um, and yeah, so the the sort of rhythmic structure of the poem. And uh, some of these sort of fixed phrases um, help to make it more easily uh, memorizable. Okay, so let's go on to uh, subsection six. Um, yeah, let's um, read the whole thing. Uh, if someone else could, um, actually, no, let's let's just do one page. Uh, it's it's like kind of an awkward length, but yeah. So if someone else could read the next page or so of subsection six, um, um, if I can get a volunteer. Yeah, I'll do it. Here, I can read. Oh, go ahead, Derek. It's okay, you go, you go. Okay, okay. Inherence of motor images in the body schema. We call body schema the representation that each of us makes of their own body and serves as a reference in space. This schematic representation, which is constant and necessary for normal life, may undergo alterations as a result either of brain lesions, parietal lobe, amputations, or various motor incapacities. The corporeal schema likely integrates sensorial data of various kinds, exteroceptive and proprioceptive, but motor anticipations play a considerable part in the organization of the body schema. Taking up the notion of an action system developed above, we might say that the body schema contains the intuition of the action system of each individual. It corresponds to the fact that an individual immediately knows how to use his set of organs, not only when the whole body is intact, but also following an amputation. In The Organism, Goldstein gives particular importance to the recovery of functions through a reorganization of the whole following a lesion. Goldstein, Goldstein, or Goldstein cites an experiment in which all four limbs of anesthetized guinea pigs are amputated. When the anesthesia wanes, these badly mutilated animals do not try to walk on their stumps. Instead, they immediately adopt a mode of writhing comparable to that of limbless animals. Motricity is reorganized as a whole, 
on the basis of the remaining functional possibilities of the whole organism. It effectuates a complete restructuring. Of course, such an interpretation conforms with Goldstein's holism, developed into a general theory of the organism and its function. According to the doctrine which generalizes the figure-ground relation, posited by Gestalt psychology. But in this particular case, the organism does indeed translate the correspondence between motor intuition, a semi-concrete image of the body's possibilities, and the organization of the body. The primordial basis for the various motor images is the intuition of possible movements in their organization and succession. The modality of motor images is the possible, because they devolve from an action system that is initially experienced as the organized network of the movements of the body proper, du corps propre. Uh, yeah, we can stop here. Um, yeah, so uh, he brings up here this um, notion of the body schema. Um, uh, there's a, a footnote or an end note in the um, English text that I didn't actually check. But yeah, so this is um, this notion of a body schema is uh, <clears throat> um, so, <clears throat> so the idea here is that um, uh, an organism, whether human or other animal, um, has a sort of um, uh, self-depiction or um, uh, self-representation of uh, of its own body. Um, so, uh, and this um, uh, body schema, um, as Simon Do points out here, it, it evolved over time. So, of course, um, as an infant, you have a certain representation of your body as being a certain size, and um, you have certain capacities for um, grasping objects or or walking and so on. And then, as you uh, get older, you grow your representation of yourself in relation to the rest of the world changes um, and your uh, capacities for action change as well. Uh, and um, he points out here that um, uh, in the case, so this is something that Goldstein um, studied a lot. Um, he, he looked, he, he worked in particular with um, World War I veterans who had suffered amputations uh, or brain damage. Uh, um, uh, and um, the body schema of these people also changes, sometimes uh, not um, adequately. So sometimes people, uh, so there's the, the famous phenomenon of phantom limbs. Uh, so people that lose a, a hand or an arm or a leg or whatever, um, sometimes still have a sensation in that missing body part. They feel like uh, like an, an itch in their hand that's missing. Uh, and of course, you can't scratch your missing hand. So it's very... Um, a very frustrating sensation, um, uh, but in general, uh, so these are sort of um, um, exceptional cases, and and usually only last uh, for uh, a few months or a certain amount of time before eventually the body schema adapts to the missing hand. So you, you no longer try to grasp things with your hand that is not there. You use your your um, your hand that you still have to um, you adapt your behavior to. Uh, grasp an object with one hand instead of with two hands, like you might have done before the amputation. Um, so, uh, yeah, the body schema adapts over time to uh, the changes in the body, whether you know part of just growth and maturation or the result of amputation or something like that. Um, and and so Simon Dome uh, brings up the Goldstein's argument about how um, this adaptation has a kind of holistic character. So this is one of the sort of um, central ideas of Goldstein is this holistic nature of um, the organism. So the organism responds not just so it's when um, <clears throat> when a, a certain uh, when an amputation happens or <clears throat> when there's a, a brain damage, um, 
the response of the organism is not just to sort of subtract the function of that organ that is missing or that piece of the brain that's missing. Um, the, the response of the organism involves a reorganization of the sort of total structure of the behavior of the organism uh, to sort of compensate for what is missing. Um, so like the, the sort of uh, example that I was giving before is that if you lose a hand, you, you no longer use you know that arm to reach for things uh, once you sort of adapt to losing a hand you you change your behavior so that you use the um, remaining arm to grasp things um, and uh, so that's sort of a, a a very basic example of restructuring your behavior but um, even in the case of um, um, people that un, um, have a stroke for example that causes brain damage they might uh, lose the ability to, to speak for uh, a certain amount of time and then regain at least partial ability to speak later on. Um, so um, the, uh, the stroke um, damages regions of the brain that are necessary for speech. Uh, but then after maybe a few months or a year or a couple of years, uh, the person is able to sort of restructure um, their speech system in their brain and uh, um, you know, regain some of the lost capacity of speech. Um, so, uh, yeah, so this this is what uh, Goldstein takes to be uh, sort of a, a holistic response of the organism to the environment uh, and to changes in the body schema. Um, so uh, Simondo brings this up here um, to, um, yeah, so he, he's, he wants to relate the motor images to the body schema. That's what we'll see when we continue reading. Um, um, so the um, motor images are always connected to the body schema, to the capacity for action that we sort of um, uh, experience ourselves as having. We always um, um, sort of uh, experience ourselves as um, having the capacity to perform certain actions uh, based on you know how our body is set up. Uh, and this experience of being able to perform certain actions is uh, is one end of the relation that uh, brings up the motor image at the other end. Um, so you experience, um, so again, the, to bring up the concept of affordances, you experience uh, an object as graspable if you have a hand that can grasp it. Um, uh, whereas if it's the object is too big or too small or, or I don't know, too sharp or whatever, you, you don't experience the object as graspable anymore. Uh, or if you don't have hands, for example, you might not experience the object as graspable. Um, and so this type of uh, uh, sort of adaptation or this relationship between the organism and the, uh, the uh, motor image is one that is mediated by the, uh, the motor, uh, or sorry, the body schema, the, the sort of representation of ourselves that we, ha that we have uh, and our experience of ourselves as capable of performing certain actions. I was recently reading um, some of that Peter Godfrey Smith book, Other Minds, and part of his theory of the origin of the self is these, um, they're called reafference mechanisms, um, in even in relatively simple nervous systems, which enable an animal to distinguish between actions that it has caused and actions caused by the environment. Um, he talks about how, you know, uh, a very simple organism will react to exogenous actions by withdrawing. But, you know, if there was no 
way to distinguish between an endogenous action and an exogenous action. Motion would be impossible. Um, and his, his theory, as I understand it, is that this, these reafferent systems, the, this kind of recursion of, um, action and the knowledge that it was the same organism that produced the action is the origin of the, like a, a sort of primordial sense of self. But it's interesting in light of the what Simon Don is talking about here, and um, you know, I think you could argue that the if Peter Godfrey Smith is right, then you know these affordances, bodily affordances, are sort of built into the idea of self from the beginning. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, the uh, like some organisms have a very um, sort of diffuse. Um, motor behavior like i'm thinking of things like jellyfish or something like that um that don't even have a nervous system um so like one part of the organism might respond to contact um by withdrawing or or some other action um and then the rest of the organism might not have any sort of coordinated response so that the each part of the organism sort of does its own thing and they have like a loose connection to each other um whereas in organisms that do have a nervous system um there's a some sort of coordination of the responses between different parts of the organism. And this is the sort of holistic um, nature of the organism that Goldstein was talking about. Um, and uh, yeah, so in, in terms of the reafferent um, structure in the nervous system, so one, one example of that is in, uh, in humans, for example, um, our sort of uh, capacity to guide motor behavior is, is um, strongly dependent on uh, um, on these reafferent uh, mechanisms, because um, nervous signals, um, like signals uh, traveling through the nervous system, are relatively slow. Um, uh, it, you know, there's a complicated electrical and chemical um, series of transmission steps, uh, and um, so, like, to to get a signal from uh, part of your brain down your spine and then into your leg, for example, might take um, um, uh, a significant fraction of a second, like several hundred milliseconds. Um, uh, but then, like, if you're trying to perform some sort of precision behavior, like, um, uh, I don't know, kicking a, a soccer ball in a particular way, um, or a football for uh, our international audience, um, you know, trying to kick the ball in a precise way to hit a target, um, you you have to um, guide your foot uh, much faster than like you can't sort of wait for the signal to travel down to your leg and then uh uh you know detect the position of the leg and then travel back to the brain and then you know keep re repeating that behavior over and over again it, it, each loop would take so long that the behavior would be uh over by the time you um actually sort of figured out how to respond in the right way uh and and so what happens is actually that um there are so when you initiate a motor behavior like moving your leg to kick a ball you uh, at the same time, part of the the signal is sort of uh, transmitted to other parts of the brain that track the uh, I guess predicted motion of the limb uh, uh, or of the part of the body, um, and and sort of use that as a model of where the limb is, uh, and and so it's much faster because it doesn't have to travel all the way down to the leg. It's it's just within the brain that the the sort of simulation is happening. Um, and then, uh, so, and then this signal is used to guide the behavior of the limb in future steps of the of the motion. Um, so, yeah, this reafferent um, 
uh, signaling you know, or this reafferent structure in the nervous system is essential to being able to guide motion at high speeds um, because otherwise you would have to like perform one step then wait to see where your your leg ends up and uh, then perform the next step and so on and, and your motion would be very slow and uh, it would be very difficult to guide um, fast motion with high precision. Yeah, that's really interesting. And that, that reminds me of what um, he says about octopuses in that book. I think as we've talked about earlier in, uh, in discussing this book, um, but the nervous system in the arms of the octopus is much more complex and recursive than the nervous system in like human limbs. And he, he says that it may be like, you know, an octopus sort of reaching for something you know, there may be some kind of top-down, uh, I mean, there's a top-down kind of command to move the limb, but then he said it may be sort of like just seeing what happens from the perspective of the central brain, because there's almost like a local um, information center in each arm uh, due to these uh, reafferent recursive nervous systems. I mean, just reading this, this section, there seems to be a I mean, we're talking largely in terms of science, I would say, and uh, scientific uh, theories about movement, bodily movement. But I think there is an underlying this. There's also quite a strong philosophical element as well at play, I would say. So, for example, the, the whole idea of body schema, I, w I would imagine, relates to Kant. So the notion of the schema, the connection between the concept and the image. So we have a, an idea of something that we might be able to do and the, the derived from the image or it's brought to the the schema brings these two together and also also reminded of the quote from spinoza who says a body we don't know what a body can do so there is this there is a really important idea of body within uh, spinoza's philosophy and in a sense this, this seems to be saying we do know or we 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 imagine we imagine we know what a body can do whereas spinoza's one of the spinoza's principles that we don't know what a body can do and then the, the finally at the end, when he talks about the modality of motor images, so we have this this kind of body image or body schema, and is possible. So it's, again, it's a, it's a, I, I would kind of relate that to a philosophical concept of possible, real, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, as a, as a mode of the mode of its of the motor image is the possible. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, Spinoza. That's one of my favorite lines from Spinoza. We don't know what a body can do. Um, and you know that's a sort of famous line, so it's not um, that's not too uh, original for me to uh, to like that line. But um, um, I think so. The idea in Spinoza when he says we don't know what a body can do is he wants to so in in that pass or the it comes up in the passage where he um, where he's criticizing the idea that we need to um, sort of suppose that certain motions of the human body or certain actions that humans perform. Uh, can only be brought about by an immaterial soul. Um, so he instead holds that um, um, that uh, the, there's a sort of parallelism between the the body and the the mind. That every um, always the there's always this um, sort of uh, motion of the of the body uh, accompanied by some sort of change of ideas, uh, but they don't interact with each other in a causal manner. Um, so we don't need to suppose that the mind has to um, uh, bring about motion in the body. Um, and, and so this idea that it, so not knowing what the body can do is um, for Spinoza has to do with, um, um, so we, we have, we're ignorant uh, scientifically of what human bodies are capable of doing. And we, we shouldn't um, sort of 
make that ignorance into an object, uh, in, into uh, an idea of the immaterial soul that um, would sort of guide the body or, or make the body perform certain actions. Um, and I think, uh, I think that same idea is at least compatible with what Simon Dong is arguing here in terms of the body schema as, uh, as something possible. Um, so we, we know what the body can do in, in the sense that we experience our body as capable of performing certain actions, um, but we, we don't necessarily have a, so th and this is a sort of internal knowledge. We, we know it in the first person sense. We um, experience ourselves as capable of doing certain things of, you know, reaching and grasping and walking and so on. Um, but we don't have a, a scientific explanation or, or the body schema itself is not a scientific explanation for um, how it is that the human body has that capacity. And that's the aspect that Spinoza is emphasizing. Uh, so um, uh, yeah, not knowing what the body can do in the sense of not having a scientific theory or um, uh, sort of an exhaustive account of what are the capacities of a human body uh, is I think compatible with knowing what the body can do in the sense of having a, a, an experience of from the inside of the body as capable of performing certain actions. Um, so yeah, I think I think those two um, ideas are are at least compatible with each other. Um, you know, what, whatever exactly Simon Don would say about the Spinozistic idea of uh, you know mind body parallelism. Isn't the big difference though that the as he says at the I end, he says the, his idea is that it's it's only possible. It's not, it's a possible motor image is is the, its mode is the possible, not the actual, uh, not the real. I should say. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, so Spinoza um, famously uh, is is skeptical of the whole idea of possibility, and and he thinks that it's ultimately sort of contradictory. Um, so everything that happens is necessary, and uh, we it's only um, in relation to our ignorance that we describe certain actions or certain events as as possible. So it's only because I uh, I don't know. Um, the sort of precise details of um, the movement of my muscles and so on that uh, a coin flip uh, seems to be contingent. It seems to be something that, uh, you know, possibly will turn up heads and possibly will turn up tails. But if I had a, an adequate understanding of all the motions of my muscles and the air resistance and the you know weight of the coin and all these things, then um, the, uh, the event of coming up heads or coming up tails would just be a, a necessary consequence of the previous um, motions of my arm and, and hand. Um, so yeah, for Spinoza, the, the, the notion of possibility has to do with ignorance. Um, uh, and it's so it's a, a sort of purely epistemic concept as opposed to something that has any ontological validity. Um, I think for Simon Don here, um, when he describes the body schema as, as having the modality of possibility, uh, I think he's um, at least in this place or, or like at this point in his argument, he's not drawing any ontological conclusions about, um, you know, whether there is su something such as the, the possible uh, as like a, an element of reality um, or whether it's something that is, you know, strictly related to our ignorance and, and lack of knowledge of a situation. Uh, I think he's he's describing it's a it's a kind of phenomenological argument here. So it's our experience of the, the body schema uh, or, or the body schema as such is something experienced um, and we experience it in the mode of possibility. We feel ourselves as being possible, uh, capable of moving or having the possibility of moving in a certain way. 
so and and so he's trying to describe this experiential aspect of um how we relate to the body uh and so whether that aspect of the body as uh uh as this sort of possible uh motion or possible behavior um whether that aspect has any uh um has any sort of ontological validity, whether it's something, you know, part of the fundamental structure of reality or whether it's only related to our ignorance, I think is something that is a, a separate question that he doesn't deal with at this point in his arguments. Um, but yeah, that's, it's, uh, it's helpful to make that distinction here. Actually, I want, one thing I would like to add to this discussion is that, like, um, uh, I would like to like, bring up the uh, example of uh, Wolf Boy. Like, uh, thinking about the Wolf Boy, like, um, he didn't know like uh, how to use like uh, arms like before uh, he was found by human beings, as far as I know. So I'd like to uh, uh, connect this one to the the previous like uh, part of this book. So whether that is a mutation or like an instinction, like but in a way like the the level of the stage of like uh, the for- formation of a body schema. Ah, uh, I'm just kind of like a in a way, like, uh, wondering, like, if that is really, like, based on, like, instinct. Because, like, for me, uh, like, the formation of body schema has to do with, uh, like, the milieu, like, the imitation of what's going on in the milieu, something like that. And uh, on another another case, is like, uh, a little bit against uh, this kind of idea is that, like, uh, the disappearance of the function of ears. Like, uh, so long time ago, ears, uh, as far as you know, it that moved. But... You know, as some goes by, that didn't uh, function at all, and then some, some, somebody still moves their ears, but the some others don't don't do that. Whatever. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, the case of uh, feral children is an interesting one that, that psychologists have studied uh, in you know as much detail as some of these cases allow. So, so these for people who maybe don't know about these cases, there have been a few cases um, throughout history of. Um, children who were apparently raised by wild animals, like their parents abandoned them or were killed or whatever, um, um, and who lived among like wolves or other wild animals. Um, so, and these are like, a lot of these cases are um, hard to validate, like someone in like 1753 or whatever, um, finds a child and, and says they were raised by wolves. Um, and, uh, you know, it's hard to sort of confirm or disprove that, um, you know, 250 or whatever years later. Um, and uh, like in most cases, uh, if a wolf finds a human infant, they would probably just eat it. Um, but, you know, in, in these particular cases, it seems like um, the, uh, uh, at least some of the the reported cases of feral children involve, uh, um, it, it seems like the wolf or other, um, um, animal sort of uh for whatever reason responded to the human infant as if it was one of its own uh infant children or uh, uh children um and sort of raised it as as if it were a child um and uh yeah so these children grow up um in animal societies in a, in a wolf pack or whatever um and then are found by humans and uh often they um have a, a very hard time uh, adapting to human society. Um, they uh, uh, they might like eat raw meat or um, uh, walk on on all fours, and uh, you know 
make noises more typical of a, a wolf than a, a human, and, and they uh, generally are not capable of learning human human language in uh, like the full um, sense of the term. Um, so yeah, these, these cases have been studied in uh, a lot of detail, um, but there's a lot of controversy over like how to interpret them, uh, you know, what exactly they tell us about um, human psychology or, or things like that. Um, yeah, um, I think in, so it's an interesting case where um, the human body schema obviously becomes very different in a child that um, learns to walk on all fours as opposed to walking on two legs. Um, um, uh, it probably depends on when exactly the child was isolated from human beings uh, and, and human society and, and things like that. But um, yeah, it would be interesting to look at some of those cases in detail and, and try to figure out um, to what extent uh, were they learning from the other animals where they, you know, the society of animals that they grew up in. Um, um, and, you know, to what extent they were sort of adapting, um, um, you know, uh, innate behaviors and, and things like that. So, yeah, it's a, it's a very complicated um, and controversial um, kind of case. Um, the case of the, the question about the ears um, is, is, yeah, I think that one is maybe a bit simpler um, because it, it's uh, a sort of traditional or it's, it's a typical kind of evolutionary response to um, uh, a situation where something, a certain function, uh, has no has no more adaptive value in a in a given environment. Um, so, like uh, a typical case is um, animals that live in caves or live underground will often uh, lose the use of their eyes over evolutionary time, over you know many uh, thousands of years. Uh, so, um, like moles, for example, are they're not uh, fully blind? I don't think, but they um, they have uh, very limited vision um, because they spend most of their lives underground. So there's no point. Uh, so evolutionarily, there's no point in sort of uh, investing the energy required to build an eye if you're just going to spend your whole life underground in the dark um, and um, not have any use for that eye in the first place. So uh, with humans, um, for whatever reason, uh, at some point in our evolutionary history, the ability to move our ears to detect sound uh, became less uh, relevant or less useful. Uh, and um, and so this, just sort of taking a guess here, it could have to do with um, bipedal locomotion. So it's, it's just as easy for us to swivel our heads uh, um, to locate the source of a sound as it is to um, compared to other animals that um, have a more limited range of motion for um, of their heads, uh, and for them, moving their ears might be more uh, useful. Um, so for us, because we have a, a, a bipedal um, stature uh, or uh, stance, um, we can swivel our heads horizontally you know, very easily, and then moving our ears might not be as useful anymore, or might not be needed anymore to locate the source of a sound. Um, so that's that's a sort of evolutionary. Um, uh, explanation of why certain behaviors might disappear uh, over over time, um, and then so it would just be like the body schema of uh, a human being uh, or most humans doesn't involve um, this sort of experience or this feeling of being able to move your ears. Uh, you know, some people have a sort of vestigial um, capacity to move their ears, but uh, it's not like a, a sort of uh, 
key piece of our behavioral repertoire in the way it is for dogs or deer or something like that. Um, so yeah, the, the body schema develops over evolutionary time in relation to the um, change in the environment and the mode of life of the organism as well. Thank you. Uh, okay, so I think, yeah, let's read one more. Um, let's read up to the section break, up to um, the heading for section B. Uh, we'll do one more and then uh, we can call it a day there. So if I can get a volunteer to read up to that uh, section break. If nobody volunteers, so I can read. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, indeed, a concrete image of a movement always implies, to some extent, a reference to the subject's body schema. To have a concrete intuition of an object's movement means, to some extent, putting oneself in its place and situation as if our body were very object. For instance, to imagine a plane taking off through, through motor intuition. Intuition means developing in oneself the progressive application of forces to the takeoff ever faster, with the feeling that one is expanding one's energy without reserve, risking it all, without hesitation or slowdown, without turning back or any possible deviation, because at the end of the runway uh, one must, a sheer force of speed fly up and over the obstacles at which one is flinging oneself. This motor image develops itself with a relatively strong analogical precision because it is of the same order as running fast to jump over an obstacle such as a hatch or a brook. It does correspond to the, the use of human motor possibilities. Conversely, it is much harder to imagine a plane landing because the slow, slowing down during the approach to the landing strip at a specific angle does not correspond to any use of the human body schema. The body, the body schema acts as a selector in the imaginative anticipation of different movements. The movements that can be imagined are those that correspond to a po possible impl implementation of the human body schema as an exhaustive and organized abstract of motor intuitions. It's likely that cultural pressures limit the use of motor images as means of entering reality in human adults. Moreover, the complete development of behaviors integrates motor spontaneities and to organize the sequences, which reduces the avail availability for play, uh, though it is noteworthy that the motor use of the body schema is widespread among children for mimicking moving objects. A child playing it is not merely a driver or a rider, but also simultaneously a car and a horse. The body schema is extended to the internal animation of those ob objects of use, most immediately connected to the behavior. Motor intuition, in the guise of behavior anticipation, practices an implicit animism. Later, the categories of perception will progressively overlay those of the motor image. Gesticulation as a mode of expression will recede in favor of the use of speech and writing. But a st study of the origin of the modes of verbal expression would very likely need to restore the primitive conditions of the semantics of gesture which implies the projection of images of movement onto reality according to the logic of the human body schema and the activity sequences of which it is uh, uh, the principle. To summarize, the primordial source of the, of the a priori appears to be in the form of anticipations of movement, the organism. Such anticipations take the form of projection of motor images into the milieu coming from this unique 
and the primary source source. That is, the organ is with its motor schemas radiating out of, out of the body schema. Yeah, I should finish here, right? Yeah, that's good. Thanks. Um, yeah, so he um, he just sort of finishes up um, this this subsection talking about um, how the body schema relates to motor images. So the example of the plane, I think, is a good one um, because uh, yeah, we can we can sort of picture ourselves um, and you know children like to play as as if they were a plane taking off, right? You sort of hold out your arms as if they were wings, and you run and then you jump over uh, a stream or whatever. Um, uh, and it's as if you you were in the position of a plane taking off, but then the other side, like the plane landing, is kind of hard to picture. Of like we don't have a, a sort of um, a corresponding experience of um, sort of descending at an angle and slowing down, uh, and until we land or something like that. Like we don't have a, a similar type of uh, motor capacity um, as as the plane landing does. Um, so yeah, this this is um, harder for us to imagine, and I think uh, um, the sort of general um, idea here is that when we uh, sort of think, or when when we our sort of most basic way of representing an object is to sort of picture ourselves as being that object uh, and having the motor capacities of that object. So um, our sort of most basic uh, understanding of a car is. Um, picturing ourselves as if we were the car or like what would it be like to move the way that a car does um and he talks about um so children in in play um sort of spontaneously adopt this kind of behavior where you you, you don't just pretend to be a driver but you pretend to be a car driving around um uh but then as we get older we tend to use a more um uh i guess objective form of representation of objects where we um, instead of sort of picturing ourselves as being the object, we depict the object as something separate from ourselves. And so the child might um, no longer play as being a car, but as using a car to drive around. Um, uh, and, and so this is part of our, and, and he thinks this is, um, or, or the way Simon Don depicts it here is that this is a, a sort of cultural overlay over the more basic biological um, relation to the object through this imaginary identification. Um, so it's only uh, because our social or cultural um, uh, sort of customs or, or um, usages require that uh, children abandon this kind of imaginary identification um, as they grow older. It's only because of that that we sort of move towards this uh, form of uh, this objective form of relating to parts of the world as entities distinct from ourselves, as opposed to um, imagining ourselves as being that object. I think this this fits really well with the uh, the use of Helmsleb's purport informed distinction in uh, A Thousand Plateaus, um, and maybe we could see this when he talks about the how the complete development of behaviors. Um, organizing the sequences of motor spontaneities. Uh, this could be seen as the gradual differentiation of a relatively more metastable and de-differentiated um, sort of potential uh, to organize in different ways. Um, and so, you know, like you mentioned, the as the child gets older, they, it wouldn't occur to them to play as the horse or the car. 
Um, but when they're younger, the capacities are, they're closer to purport than to form and the capacities are relatively de-differentiated. And so there's a sort of broader range of, I guess, becomings available. Um, and I think this even relates to what we were talking about earlier with sort of the notions of what the body can do, um, being, you know, relatively constrained by, uh, by, um, these behavioral developments. Yeah. I think that's, um, I think it makes sense to see the development of behavior through time, through the lifespan of a human being, for example, as, uh, a kind of, um, um, there's a there's a selection out of possible behaviors um, that only certain behaviors will end up being um, incorporated into the behavioral repertoire of the adult human. So you know the uh, like you know children like you know uh, often will play by you know rolling around on the ground and uh, walking on all fours and things like that 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 adults don't really do anymore except when they're playing with children. Um, um, there's all kinds of sort of behavioral, um, uh, there's all kinds of behaviors that children perform that they give up on or, or um, stop doing as they grow older. And, um, you know, to what extent this is part of just sort of uh, biological maturation and, and to what extent it has to do with um, being taught or explicitly told not to perform certain kinds of behaviors. Um, that would be a, a sort of complicated question to um, to differentiate. but. Uh, yeah, I think we we can see the development of human behavior as um, there's at, on the one hand there's um, um, an expansion of uh, the capacity for action as you grow older. You know, like you're capable of uh, you know at a certain age you learn how to tie your shoes, um, uh, and but before you know under a certain age your your motor skills are not um, precise enough to be able to tie your shoes, and then uh, at a certain age you gain that capacity uh, to tie your shoes. Um, so you expand your motor capacities as you grow older, uh, but then you also um, sort of lose certain capacities, or at least you um, exclude certain capacities for motor behavior um, as you grow older as well. So there's a, a sort of both things happening at the same time. There's a expansion of motor capacities and a, a selection um, out of the sort of whole range of possible motor activities of a human body. Uh, of a particular sub subset of those capacities to uh, of which um, we will sort of uh, uh, take to be our uh, our behavioral repertoire. Can, can I understand like like a human being's like body image or body schema? Like for example, like uh, human being want to fly, but they uh, we don't have uh, wings, and then that leads to the invention of the flight, something like that, airplane. Yeah, I think um, so. He he mentioned in an early, I think in the introduction, um, he mentioned how humans have this. Uh, there's like a longstanding um, image of human flight. Uh, there are like ancient myths about it. There's the story of uh, Icarus and and uh, Daedalus. Um, um, uh, and um, yeah, so there's this longstanding image of human flight, um, and he relates this to dreams as maybe a source of. Um, uh, you know, we have, lots of people have dreams of flying, um, and then this could be a source uh, potentially for this um, desire to fly. Uh, and then he also connects it with observing birds and, and um, you know, sort of picturing ourselves uh, in the situation of a bird. I and mean, what would it be like to fly like a bird? Um, 
but um, yeah, so the, we'll get to later on in the book or in this uh, set of lectures, um, we'll get to the phase of invention. Um, so there's a whole sort of cycle of the image from this sort of vague anticipation of, you know, flying would be pretty cool um, to, uh, you know, progressively coming to a point where you can actually build a device that will enable you to fly. Uh, and and he points out, uh, I think, in the uh, introduction here that um, the an airplane doesn't really resemble um, a bird in terms of like the mechanism of flight. Like you know, we don't have flapping wings on our airplanes uh, and um, um, our sort of uh, understanding of uh, like a lot of the sort of early experiments with flight had to do. They, they tried to copy wings in the sense that they tried to have flapping uh, some sort of flapping mechanism, and, and those were not effective. Um, and it was only much later when the physics of um, uh, like fluids um, operating in, or um, aerodynamics of fluids and so on, um, all of that sort of came together to bring about um, the capacity to build a machine that would allow us to fly, but it, it doesn't resemble a bird. So it, it's, uh, it's a much more sort of abstract connection between this desire to fly and this sort of representation of you know, what it would be like to fly, this motor image of flight, um, uh, it, it has a, a has to go through this sort of long detour of uh, physical theory before it can actually be realized in an airplane. Right. Thank you. Right. Uh, so I think we can uh, end here for today. Um, I think it's a good stopping point. So uh, we'll pick up from here next time from the subsection or sorry uh, section B. Um, so, um, yeah, thanks, uh, everyone for coming out. And, um, I mentioned for those who, who maybe weren't here when I talked about this, so I mentioned in the, uh, uh, the forum on here that I'm going to be traveling in April. Um, and so, um, if anyone has ideas about whether they would like to continue without me or, um, take a break while I'm away, um, you can put them in that section, uh, on there and, um, yeah, just let us know what you think, um, about that whole idea what to do during that time when I'm away. Okay, uh, so thanks everyone and uh, see you next week.